Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Hello Nudgers, welcome to All Behave. I'm Mike Hughes and I'm with Kimberly Richter. Hello Kimberly, are you okay? You good? Hey Mike, excited for the last All Behave episode of the year. Yes, the last All Behave episode. Waving firmly goodbye to 2020. Uh, we hope everyone is doing alright. Kimberly and I are recording this uh, remotely um, and... We have a bit of a business slant to this episode, Kimberly. You and Rory were lucky enough to talk business this month. <laughs> that we were. We have, were joined by the, the wonderful Louise Nicholson, who is a serial entrepreneur and mm. academic and author of uh, the recent book, The Entrepreneurial Myth, where she really impact, unpacks sort of the stories we tell ourselves about startups and success and failure and culturally how that impacts the way that we support entrepreneurs. So she had some really fantastic perspectives to share, um, and Rory, as ever, um, led the interview with, with great gusto. Um, so I think that the Obehave listeners will be in for a treat. Cool. And um, yeah, I think that focus on failure was really interesting to me. We sometimes see people when they when they talk about success, like there's a linear journey from A to Z, or was it? of success, uh, whereas actually failure is, is just as important to learn from. I think that that's so true. And to illustrate that, I love Roy's anecdote at the end of the podcast around how the UK military studies how um, enemies fire will hit different aircrafts when they crash. Um, but somebody very smart pointed out that we only look at the aircrafts that actually land rather than the ones that are at the bottom of the English Channel. Um, and to fully understand failure, we really need to look at the ones that you know didn't land and didn't arrive safely, um, because there we can learn the most about how to reduce potential crashes in the future. Um, I think that that metaphor extends really nicely to to entrepreneurship, and also to sort of Louise's main thesis of her book, uh, which she unpacks over the next forty five to fifty minutes. Nice. Um some parallels there I think with the work that we do with the annual where we also discuss what doesn't work as well as what does because I think there's just as much to learn from that too um okay well uh, as we said um our last episode of 2020 thank you to everyone for listening um this year um Hopefully, wherever you are, you have a really enjoyable, relaxing break, and we will see you all bright and bushy-tailed in 2021. Should we cut to the audio, Kimberly? Let's do it. Welcome, everybody, to this um, episode of Obehave. I'm joined here by Rory Sutherland, our vice chairman here at Ogilvy, um, as well as Louise Nicholson, who is the recent author of The Entrepreneurial Myth, also a serial entrepreneur and coach and founder herself. Um, we're so pleased to have you join us, Louise. Uh, to kick us off, I, I wonder if you could briefly introduce yourself and share with the audience what one thing you wish they knew about entrepreneurship. Thank you very much for having me. I mean, I wish people knew what entrepreneurship was really, really like. Um, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur myself, but um, over uh, 30 years I've studied uh, how we talk about entrepreneurs in the media, through business schools, politics. And what you find is we've got an awful lot of gurus and saviours and dragons and unicorns and these words create worlds. They sort of puff up the expectation we have of entrepreneurs. Um, they exclude everybody that uh, doesn't look like Richard Branson or Elon Musk um, and isolate founders from each other. 
Um, so I wish people knew about the messy, anxious, fallible, brilliant um, reality of entrepreneurship. Absolutely. I, I think that that's really true. Um, as an entrepreneur yourself, um, how would you say that you describe the mindset of an entrepreneur? Um, I, I think if you think of entrepreneurship, um, it's more uncertain, it's more complex, it's more stressful, it's more pressured, it's often less lucrative than corporate work. So um, an entrepreneurial mindset is optimistic and we've got to serve that optimism and um, the hope that these sort of brilliant business people bring into um, our societies with better support and better policy and generating better odds for uh, the survival of entrepreneurial businesses. It's interesting you call the, um, uh, the whole thing a myth and your view would be that a kind of convincing and attractive mythology is built up around the whole idea of the entrepreneur. Um, it's similar, I suppose, to work that's been done by Matt Ridley with his book, How Innovation Happens. So Matt's book makes the point that we tend to have this story of innovation, which is that someone has a brilliant invention. The applications of that invention are readily and immediately apparent. And everybody acknowledges that person immediately as a hero, and they go on to great success and to change the world. And his point is that, in fact, first of all, I suppose the process is much, much messier than we imagine. So that you know, there are applications, he, he would argue, that patent law is you know, probably not very well regarded in the sense that the most important process is not really the invention itself. It's the very messy and experimental process of both perfecting the usability of that invention and also discovering applications for it. And in some cases, uh, at a marketable level, as Bill said, of persuading people to adopt it. We always assume that things like vaccination, once Jenner came up with vaccination, everybody carried it shoulder high into Westminster Abbey. Um, in fact, he faced extraordinary resistance from everything from religious groups to, of course, the medical fraternity, who were already making money out of a practice called variolation and were unwilling to change. So the, the road from kind of idea to reality is a much windier and, in fact, many-forked road. Whereas, of course, when we tell the story in reverse, we tend to ignore all the wrong turnings and the cul-de-sacs and the byways, and we tend to kind of make the story look in retrospect, much more linear than it was in reality. Do you think that's also fair about generally successful entrepreneurship? Uh, absolutely. And I think when you're in the middle of that sort of entrepreneurial wrestle, you know, you're wa waking at 3 a.m., you're worried about your customers' um, supply line, you, you know, all those anxieties and fallibilities, you feel a million miles away from that sort of publicised entrepreneurial myth and I think that's where you do a disservice to entrepreneurs because you feel very isolated in that situation and in fact entrepreneurship is, is this sort of huge messy system there are all sorts of elements that contribute to business success um, and failure um, and if we took uh, a really sophisticated look at that system as they do in other industries like healthcare and aviation, if we were to sort of share and aggregate and analyse the data around business success and failure, we'd see um, patterns and I think we'd see opportunities to um, save and scale businesses. So I think um, it's much more than a sort of glossy shorthand, these entrepreneurial myths. They actually do real damage because that it means we oversimplify what it takes to succeed as a business person. But I've always had the slight worry that um, uh, if you think about the presentation of business on television, um, the two most prominent business programs are The Apprentice and Rashomon's Den. Now, both of those things, though fantastic as entertainment, bear scant resemblance really to any practice of business I've been engaged in in the last 30 years. 
And yet we must have a generation of kind of school children coming up. We go, you know, you have a weird idea and immediately someone gives you a million pounds for it. Or else you have the apprentice bit, which is that business is some kind of dog-eat-dog -dog kind of ruthless competition. Whereas in reality, entrepreneurial behaviour often depends on partnerships, I guess. Yes, yes, that's absolutely the case. And then when you're in a business and it's going very well and you're looking to exit, um, uh, the exit of, uh, from a business is presented like a game show in the same sort of way. You know, you win the prize, you um, get the glory. Um, and uh, as we've said, it's much more complicated than that. Um, and I think that it's this gap between the myth and the reality of business um, it, it has a real cost. So there was um, an academic at the U uh, University of California, Freeman, I guess his name was, um, who has done one of the first studies to establish the link between um, entrepreneurship and mental health issues. So he found that 77% of um, entrepreneurs that he studied felt their businesses negatively impacted their mental health. So there is a real person knock-on effect of this uh, myth. And if we were to approach it like those other industries um, and look at all the different elements of success and failure, I think we would uh, do a better job in supporting and equipping and empowering these entrepreneurs. Kimberly, what have you, what have you got next? Because this is a really important point because the misrepresentation of something possibly both encourages the wrong people to go into it for the wrong reasons, that's one problem. But also we need to look at the opportunity cost, which is the discouragement that people might suffer because they go, you know, I haven't got a wacky enough idea or something of that kind. Yeah. Really curious to hear both of your perspectives on sort of the origins of these different narratives and where they might have come from, and if there are also any kind of cross-cultural implications of of those beginnings. Um, I think the entrepreneurial myth uh, was handed down to us by the Greeks. There's a journalist who wrote a book um, called Seven Basic Plots. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Rory, but it's about how these uh, stories run through yes. all sorts of um, parts of our lives, you know, uh, defeating the monster in the uh, quest for riches and rags to riches stories. And what you find is that these stories, whatever the economic system, so whether it's in China, India, UK, US, these same stories persist in um, the business world. So you can uh, see them everywhere from kind of Homer to Star Wars. The same basic yes. stories just recur time and time again. Yes, and when you, when you study business narratives, you find these stories are, are buried there. And, um, you know, that does exclude people. And uh, although these stories, you know, serve good psychological purposes, um, it, we need to examine them sort of compare them with the, the sort of real um, mess of business. Do you think there's also a problem in that entrepreneurs themselves, uh, once they're successful, because of course unsuccessful entrepreneurs never get interviewed, once they are successful, they dangerously downplay the role of luck and happenstance. So they like to tell a story as though it was their idea all along and the whole thing was, was planned and they so relied on their unique and remarkable genius. Whereas in reality, uh, a large proportion of entrepreneurs probably succeed simply through persistence. And a large group, and, and by the way, I mean, this is always difficult for people to acknowledge, but a large group of them happen to be in the right place at the right time. And so it's very interesting that we, we dislike, because we want business to look meritocratic, we dislike admitting that you know, a large part of business success is down to simple luck. Timing being one thing that's often very difficult to control, but which has a disproportionate effect on success. I mean, one of the easiest mistakes you can make in tech is actually being too early for many companies. Yes. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is that when you look at capitalism, 
as a system, it's a charity. It's absolutely vital that good fortune is rewarded. But in other words, businesses that happen to be opportune uh, need a mechanism by which they grow, and businesses which happen to be, even though the arguments about creation may be very sound, businesses that happen to be too early or you know, fail to solve a particular problem just tend to fail. And of course, this feedback mechanism, which is partly, just as you know, if you think about it, about half of the major medical discoveries have been made in labs by luck, you know, penicillin, um, a huge number of, of scientific discoveries are made by chance observation. And of course, in business, we don't like to admit that this is happening because we want business to look like a, a you know, meritocratic you know, reward system. And the truth of the matter is that there are some businesses that have succeeded by essentially being quite stupid, but then events change so that what was stupidity five years ago starts to look like you know, prescient inspiration. And we always tell the more kind of what you might call the more deterministic, the more planned aspect of the story, not the kind of random and stochastic aspect. Yes, I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, and a, a big issue is that we don't actually know because we don't study success properly. So we are really quick to draw on those fuzzier assumptions, you know, of fortune and luck and myth. Um, and the real challenge to us is actually to study business success and failure properly. And um, I partnered shortly after writing the book with an organisation called Autopsy. And despite the uh, gruesome name, they analyse a business failure um, and they sort of aggregate that data. Um, and we're working together to sort of look at uh, lessons that can be learned from um, businesses that have failed. And therein lies the opportunity to not chalk it up to luck or fortune or myth or an entrepreneurial guts or um, uh, the privilege of the entrepreneur. You know, we really need to know while we don't analyse failure, while we sweep this uh, sort of 90% under the carpet um, and excuse it with myth and romanticise failure and celebrate failure, um, you know, there's the missed opportunity. Because the more we learn about why businesses fail, the more we can save and scale businesses. I mean, autopsies is an incredibly important business simply because... If you think about it, successful businesses have disappeared. Unsuccessful businesses disappear. So case studies are not really written about failure. Um, uh, and so uh, the behavioral economist, uh, Richard Thaler, has a brilliant idea of conducting what he calls a pre-mortem, which is most business planning is based on let's imagine a fantasy world of complete success and work out how we might get there. And he argues that there's a corresponding activity, which is let's have a look at reasons why we might fail and try as far as possible to avoid them. Yeah. Are there any persistent findings that autopsy's work tends to reveal? I mean, that's what we're working on at the moment. Um, and so, you know, imagine if you weren't just doing that process of looking for, you know, for things that might fail on, in your business to sort of mitigate that failure in advance of starting your business. Imagine if you had a database of thousands of businesses where you could actually see um, the evidence of you know, team dynamics or maybe there are geographical trends or maybe um, it's, there are behavioral trends. We know that, for example, when a business gets funded, that the behavior of the founders changes. And if we could identify, um, uh, you know, a, in a statistically significant way, um, we could start designing interventions just as they do in other um, industries. So it's too early to say categorically, um, but that's exactly what we're working on at the moment. It, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I've contrasted business planning with military planning, where, first of all, in military planning, because people die, you do spend a lot of time considering what might go wrong. 
rather than just fantasizing about a conference outcome mm. because the cost of making a mistake is significantly higher and very personal your death uh, but the other thing is that all business all military plans assume that things won't go to plan mm. so they, they you know just as the famous phrase is no strategy survives contact with the enemy they always know that the success of your plan is highly dependent on what other people choose to do in response. And so they think about planning in terms of a wider range of possible outcomes, whereas most business planning is start with a fantasy and then work out ways to get there, generally with a high dose of over-optimism wrapped in. Yeah, business planning is deeply, deeply flawed. Um, and so are the stories of failure come out the other end you know and often you only hear the sort of stories of business failure um, from somebody who is in a position of great privilege you know so um, Elon Musk's uh, story of past failures or Richard Branson's stories of failures um, are sort of hollowed out by their own success if you know what I mean they uh the real failures, those that didn't get the break or didn't, you know, um, enjoy that success, are invisible. They're not heard, and um, that's what that's the data that's really important because we are talking about the majority of entrepreneurial businesses don't succeed, and we need to understand why, because we're the only sort of industry that accepts um, the you know, inevitability of losing all those millions of customers. And um, I think if it, things work for aviation and healthcare, they'd work for um, business startup. And uh, it's, a call to, it's a call to arms, really. Let's take this seriously. Let's analyse the patterns. Let's design better policy. So um, your enterprise policy follows the entrepreneurial myth. So when you study um, enterprise policy, um, as I did in UK and US over a 50-year period, and you really look closely at that, you see that um, we plough um, all our sort of um, business and political support in at the early years, when actually there are really predictable stages um, that, that in a scale-up business when it starts to grow and succeed where that money would be better spent um, and have better outcomes. You also find that uh, we support um, uh, manufacturing businesses better than service-oriented businesses, and yet service businesses make up the majority of entrepreneurial ventures. So there are real um, faults with how we support a business, and this is where the, the entrepreneurial myth has a real punch because it distorts policy. Um, and that has a real uh, impact. Do you think that it's a cultural failing in the sense that um, I suspect that quite a large number of businesses fail through inadequate or bad marketing, and yet there's a kind of culture particularly prevalent in tech now that you must somehow succeed without marketing because marketing is cheating and that the only you know, the only reputable way to win is by essentially producing superior products. And that creates a problem in that those kind of cultures, an engineering culture, a tech culture, are disproportionately unwilling to uh, address just questions of making the product readily saleable. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I think if, you, if we were pure rational beings... Um, then uh, that engineering tech mindset of, you know, that you go through life and you um, pick the products and services and the opportunities from the, the businesses that um, make most rational sense, you know, that would be fine. Um, but we're not, are we? We, we make um, decisions through other means um, with uh, emotion and therefore marketing will always be important because at a very banal level you can't buy something that you've never heard of I mean you know that's that's not a yeah. it sounds like a completely banal thing to say but also you can't buy something if you don't inherently trust it and if you haven't yeah. had enough social proof around it and so on and so forth 
so one of the interesting things is that you make the point that passing entrepreneurial myth tends to cause us to focus health at the very beginning. And in fact, there are kind of hurdles later on in the entrepreneurial business which require more focus. So I've often heard it said, sometimes by Americans, sometimes by Brits, that one of the problems with British entrepreneurialism isn't that we've got any shortage of it. It's that nobody or very few people seem to have an appetite or an ability to turn a one or two or five or ten million pound business into a hundred million pound business. Yeah. That entrepreneurs seem to reach a particular scale. I've heard it by Americans, I've heard it partly attributed to the British class system, which is that, you know, in Britain there's not much incentive to be worth more than ten million pounds because you buy yourself two nice houses, you put your children through private school and you buy a Range Rover and an Argo. And your material aspirations are kind of at an end. You know, there's not much appetite for the private jet. That's what the Americans always tell me. <laughs> I don't know whether that's a, you know, a, a slight misrepresentation. But there does seem to be this failing in the UK that um, we can produce kind of small businesses and if we can even scale them up to medium-sized businesses. But kind of Dyson and Branson aside, the number of entrepreneurs who create something in the kind of, you know, the nine to ten digit mark, seems to be pretty small. Yeah, I think it's about a lot. There are several things in there. There's our own cultural context, you know, nation of shopkeepers kind of mentality and how big is big enough. But there's also, um, you can look at it from the other angle around how we define entrepreneurship. So the vast majority of the world's entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs through necessity, not through to sort of live that jet set lifestyle. And um, those are the entrepreneurs that, uh, you know, make a disproportionate contribution to an economy and success. Um, so I think there's, some, there's issues around ambition in there. And then there's also um, issues around definition. Yes, definition's interesting because your point about many people being entrepreneurial through necessity, very true of, say, first-generation immigrants in many places, is you don't have the networks necessarily to join more established organisations. Um, that's a very interesting case of the definition of thing because we mm. tend purely to have this stereotype of the kind of rustling person who seeks to disrupt the category rather than someone who through necessity just wants to do fairly well in an existing company. Yes, and I think you know what's particularly interesting about um, this summer and lockdown is that the number of new um, business incorporations is actually um, more than the same time last year. So we've incorporated more businesses in the lockdown period than the, the same period in 2019. And that says something really remarkable about um, how people behave and the role um, entrepreneurship can play, that it, it channels this sort of essential creativeness and that businesses are born of necessity, not just um, ambition or a, a lifestyle option or um, kind of a desire for that jet set lifestyle but actually it's much more fundamental than that people are out of work they um, have an idea or a, a product to sell or a marginal improvement on something that already exists and therein lies uh, an opportunity and um, a job and an income and it's adverse conditions which force them to take the jump in many cases. Yeah, yes. And that, so I, I think there's something very encouraging about that. Um, and that really emphasises how important it is we support these people properly. And we ensure that we have real entrepreneurial role models um, and real advice and better policy um, because if you are creating a business in lockdown through necessity um, there's very little 
Ramsey can teach you. Really, <laughs> the strength comes from your peers, you know, from your your much more localised connections, from the people you can phone um, when you haven't slept and the people you can confide in um, uh, underneath the bed. Is there a kind of case that... I always remember that John Maynard Keynes said that in the future he hoped that economists would come, become a bit like dentists. You know, instead of being a kind of grandiose economic discipline, it would become a practical discipline where someone running a small business who wanted a bit of help could pop in um, and visit an economist. And I suppose Tudor entrepreneur, the accountant, often plays that role a bit. But there is a case to be made that actually if you look at all the professional services firms that cluster around you know, providing support to large established businesses, that loneliness of the long-term entrepreneur uh, does seem to be quite severe because accountants aside, maybe you know, as, if you have to have a sympathetic bank manager, the number of people to call on outside your immediate peer group is, I suppose, quite small. Yes, and I think the myth silences you. So I think if you, ah, if you, yeah, if you believe the myth, and most of us do, if you believe the myth, you um, ex have those high expectations of yourself. You think this idea has got to come from my stomach. I've got to leap <laughs> into the unknown. I've got to um, care more about my work family than I do my own. I've got to. Um, keep moving, keep striving, keep hustling, keep failing. You know, there is this internal um, narrative that the myth kind of is, is a sort of hectoring, uncomfortable place to be. And while we do that, you isolate yourself from your peer because you think, well, they look pretty good on the surface, you know, because these things, these are our invisible um, processes. You know, so you can't tell when you look at your peer at, you know, um, the, the sort of um, latest Zoom networking event or um, you can't tell what they're going through. And we're isolated from each other inside the myth. Whereas if we were much more open about the realities of business, not just those on their pedestal from their position of success, which is very easy to discount at 3 a.m. when you're worrying about a particular customer proposal. But if we could connect properly with people and share the realities of entrepreneurship, we would be better supported. And I think we would have better um, health and um, the businesses would be um, better supported and potentially more successful drawing on that network around us. And the myth tells you it, it, it imposes a kind of machismo on the entrepreneur that, uh, you know, you should be able to do it alone. I think so, yeah. I mean, that lone wolf, you know, that the fact that we have um, the leader of a business on the pedestal and actually one, uh, one entrepreneur, he'd sold his business to a Google company, uh, incredibly acclaimed um, businessman um, shared just that. You know, I'm nothing without the operators, without the curators, without the team beneath. And um, that's the strength of looking at entrepreneurship as a system, as you see all the different roles and all the different types of entrepreneurship. And um, it sort of debunks this lone hero, which is no good for us individually as entrepreneurs. Um, and uh, I just think it's a really valuable thing. You know, what's really interesting is how, how many entrepreneurial um, or innovative businesses rely on community in their products. So you think about Airbnb, um, Uber, you know, these are community fueled products. Um, and yet the very system that created these products and services um, insists on isolating people. You know, we don't deploy the same principles of um, community and collectives um, in the uh, 
entrepreneurship system itself. That's a fascinating observation. I was wondering, actually, when you mentioned Wales, do you think what you've studied at uh, the various mythologies you've uncovered, do you think they have anything to tell larger organisations? Because, you know, it, it's always worth remembering that um, I think we have acknowledged that point which was first made, I suppose, by people like Schumpeter, that um, entrepreneurs are essential to the economy because they essentially disrupt it in ways that incumbents have no incentive to do. Mm. Nevertheless, there are, you know, there is the question which is, why wasn't Uber founded by an existing cab firm? Uh, you know, you might argue, why wasn't Airbnb founded by a hotel chain? Why is it, I mean, apart from obviously that incumbency problem, you don't want to disrupt your existing market. I don't think that's a complete explanation. Why is it that large organizations are so bad at doing this and that um, entrepreneurs remain so necessary? Because there must be lessons here for what you might call um, intrapreneurialism, which is entrepreneurship within an organization rather than outside it. I wonder if there's something to do with the, the sort of necessity factor. You know, if you um, are in a large organisation, you know, you're absorbed by the processes, aren't you? And the, um, your focus is very different. If you're if you're a, an outsider, um, and there's, you know, it's necessary to um, create and earn then perhaps the dynamic is different. You know, the create. But the mental focus is fundamentally different if you only depend on this one thing for your survival. Mm. Um, and also, I suppose, there, there's the question of financial constraints, which is that, uh, you know, generally large organisations are preoccupied with short-term returns. And so you don't sit very comfortably on a balance sheet if your return mm. for three years out. Mm. And I think, you know, I don't know, I'm just proposing this, I don't, I'm not sure what I think about this, but do we have to be uncomfortable to create? Possibly. That's a very interesting question. You certainly have to, I mean, uh, there is that thing that when the consequences, when you have skin in the game, uh, there's quite a bit of psychological evidence that skin in the game makes you think about things in a different way to someone in a corporate setting. And the reason would be, I suppose, that if you're in a corporate setting, you're not so much frightened of failure, you're frightened of blame. Yes, that's correct. And so your need to defend and justify yourself to some extent distorts corporate behaviour. And I've argued in my book that actually the need to be completely rational, it would be almost impossible for a large established drinks company to introduce a drink which is eccentric as bread pudding. Because it breaks almost every given rule of drinks, not least that it doesn't taste particularly nice. <laughs> okay, so getting that through Unilever's research process, you know, when 90% of uh, respondents said they found the technical drink tasted repellent, which I think was more or less the case. Okay, that would be much, much harder in an institutional setting than in an entrepreneurial one. Uh, and I suppose, you know, and, and the, the, the category metrics, I think a lot of Personally, my view is a lot of a, a successful innovation is really psychological, not technological. My view of Uber is that the, the real genius of Uber was the map, which changes the experience of waiting for a cab so that there's much less uncertainty involved. You can watch the car approach. And often I think you know, those, you know, those surprisingly trivial things uh, would get killed by a larger organisation. They'd focus on something serious, like how quickly do the cars arrive, which is a kind of objective metric, whereas Uber does something rather cunning. It says it doesn't really matter how long the car takes to arrive. What matters is how the passenger feels like while they're waiting. And I think, I think often businesses get trapped in a kind of uh, rational or post-rationalized way of looking at the world, where if something makes sense, then it's true. And it seems a perfectly sensible thing. People want cars to arrive sooner rather than later. But if you delve a bit deeper, what they really care about is they want the car to arrive sooner to minimise the period of uncertainty rather than because they want to make, they, they want to make a departure faster. Yes. 
And so understanding, you know, I mean, John is a classic case of having very eccentric, you know, he was more interested in not what the phone could do, but what it felt like while you were doing it. And so I think there's this whole category of entrepreneurialism, which is really based on either the accidental or the deliberate um, exploitation of a counterintuitive psychological fact. Uh, you know, five guys, very, very unusual pricing for this money. You know, the burgers are insanely expensive, but the drink sweeper is a hero. You know, though, and, and I, actually I think, uh, you know, quite a lot of entrepreneurs think they're successful for reasons that aren't actually true. You know, it's much easier to write a Harvard business case review on supply chain management if you yeah. want to write a case study. Than to, I've often wondered about whether there are big companies that failed because of, psych, you know, totally weird psychological factors, e.g. I always secretly wondered whether Saab failed because no one could make any sense of their product lineup. It was a very, very strong brand, but I, I even asked Saab owners, what's the difference between a Saab 95 and a Saab 90? And they haven't got the faintest idea. And, you know, so I, it, it, there is an element to it, of course, which is that entrepreneurialism and a degree of randomness is necessary just to discover what people want. I mean, yeah. I, I think we'll see, I mean, I, after COVID, we're going to see a large change in working patterns, and also patterns in consumer behaviours are going to be massively different. Um, they will be different, but certainly patterns in business and B2B behaviour will have changed completely. Um, so, you know, starting yourself as a Zoom-based business, which would have been, you know, highly awkward two years ago, is now, for any professional services business, it's not. I would argue we just need to reinvent ourselves slightly. Because, the, you know, when you can talk to someone uh, without needing to get on a plane or get on a train, uh, you know, who you want to work with and how you cooperate fundamentally changes. I think that there were so many great nuggets in there. Um, I'm, I'm also conscious that um, we're close to time, so I wonder if, if I could bother you both with one last question before we wrap up. Um, uh, a big theme that emerged for me in this discussion is that asking for help is such an important thing um, and it is absolutely okay and important to do at any stage of, of growth within a venture. Um, Louise is an entrepreneur and Rory perhaps as an intrapreneur, the founder of the Painted Girl Science practice. I would love to hear from you both what kind of advice you would give to folks who perhaps during COVID or at any other stage of the game have, have made the jump and have started something on their own. Yeah. You go first, Louise. <laughs> I was going to say, um, I mean, I think it's really important that people speak up, you know, that we're frank with each other, that we listen hard um, and that we share, we, you know, we take off that entrepreneurial mask. Um, and then if we're not going to be the entrepreneur of the myth, who are we going to be? You know, we need to, to, to really sort of reflect on uh, the type of entrepreneur we are, the role entrepreneurship plays in our life, whether that be of ambition or necessity, um, and to just sort of make those connections really with the system around us. Um, and then as a sort of broader, on a broader perspective, we need to share data. We need to learn from failure and we all have a role to play in um, that learning, which I think is a way um, for us to ensure that um, we improve uh, the sort of health and wealth of entrepreneurship. No, I'd, I'd love to echo that. I think um, the truth of the matter is all these people like Branson, I'm sure, ask people for help all the time but uh, they don't make a lot of noise about doing so. And they, you know, um, and actually that ability that it's okay to ask. The other thing I would say is that it's very, very easy to get trapped in a model of the world, one which prob probably makes sense to you, and you become convinced that your success will be down to X or Y, and you've told yourself a story in advance. And being able to play different scenarios in your head and to be able to experiment with, you know, several different frames of looking at the world is always, I think, a valuable exercise. Mm. Um, 
The other thing, the other thing I'd love to do, is <laughs> more. Um, there isn't enough marketing help for small businesses. I, obviously, this is you know my own preoccupation with marketing. But uh, one of the things I love behavioural science for is the fact that it's scalable. If you work for an ad agency, generally, unless they've got a few million pounds to give to Rupert Murdoch, um, there, isn't any, there isn't anybody to help with it. But having what you might call um, behavioral science advice, or you know, being able to say to a cafe, this is, this is just a piece of advice. I'll give you two little bits of advice to any small-scale shop people. This is certainly for them. If you're a cafe, leave tables outside the building, even if it's raining. Because from 400 yards away, having a few chairs and tables not only says that there's a cafe over there, but that it's open. Okay? So, you know, there are things which are advertising which we don't need to put in as advertising. That's, that's one mm. little thing. So, merely making yourself prominent. I know of businesses locally which would probably make 25% more money if they had better signage. Absolutely down to the sim something as simple as that. And whereas you have advertising agencies talking to Unilever, there isn't the equivalent entity to go and talk to a, um, a you know, a, a tire repair business or a cafe or something similar. My other little tip for anybody running a shop is very simple. Um, one, something not to do, which is to allow people into the shop at five o'clock and then say, I'm sorry, we're closed. Never do that. You've lost the customer forever. On the other hand, lock the shop at five o'clock, hover by the door, and if anybody makes an effort to open the door or walks towards the door, make a big show of unlocking the shop for them, and you've won a customer for life. So there are little psychological tricks. And, you know, maybe this happened in my next book. But I'd love, I'd love there to be more sources of marketing advice and promotional advice uh, to organizations below a certain size. I think there'd be a real appetite for that. And, you know, I mean, actually, maybe Zoom provides us with that opportunity. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to spend a day on a train to visit, uh, you know, a small business for an hour in exchange for, you know, 500 quid. But um, to be absolutely honest, if uh, they're prepared to pay that money for us to give half an hour of Zoom advice on behavioral science, well, we're kind of interested now. Yeah. So, so you know, uh, just as medicine, if you like, is, you know, there are plans, and I have doctor friends who are, very, very keen on Zoom medicine. You know, the fact that actually you can transform medicine to some degree in this way. I'd, I'd also be very, very keen on Zoom marketing advice. I think that's something we need to create and continue to invest in. Because it's not, you know, I mean, uh, you know, very, very large, even fairly large entrepreneurial organizations make basic marketing mistakes. The biggest mistake, by the way, being simply doing too little of it. Because the temptation is always to spend your money on something tangible uh, rather than on intangible value mm, absolutely well I think this this moment um, of increased uh, digital engagement um, both both at work and at play has sort of democratized insight in a way that makes it far more accessible to many um, so I, I suspect I would encourage all the listeners um, participating in this podcast at the moment to, to reach out via Twitter, um, via our other channels with any other questions that you might have around entrepreneurship and behavioral science as it relates to, to scaling ventures. Um, I'm sure Rory and Louise would be happy to, to continue the discussion um, along those threads. Um, but in the interim, thank you both so much for your time and um, for participating in this really rich discussion and I, I can't wait to see where where this book takes us next thank you so much thank you for having me me too and, and the work on by the way on analyzing failure and the autopsy is incredibly valuable work you know you all, all know the story don't you of the the, uh, the people who looked at where planes during world war ii had been hit by bullets and set about trying to thicken the level of armaments the, the protection level of the, um, in the areas which had received the most bullet wounds. And some genius statistician suddenly came down and said, stop, we're analysing the patterns of bullet holes in the planes that have survived. The planes we need to look at, if we want yeah. to know where to strengthen the actual um, armaments of the planes, are the ones that are at the bottom of the English Channel. In fact, what you need to do 
is actually strengthen the armaments on the aircraft in precisely the case of places where we don't have any recorded kills, because those are the fatal shots. And you're absolutely right that this survivorship bias, Nassim Taleb talked very well about this, it's very easy to look at running a restaurant as being an easy job, because the, the only restaurants you see are the successful ones. The graveyard of failed restaurants is very, very full, but they're all underground. And so the business of focusing on analyzing what fails, not on analyzing what survives, seems to me unbelievably important. I absolutely agree. And I think it's even worse when you glamorize the um, failure of those that don't make it. And if we bust the myth, um, we'll get uh, to the real answers as to how more businesses can um, survive. And that's never been more important. I mean, as we head into um, recession, it, it's essential that more of um, these essential entrepreneurial ventures survive. I'm going to make a cheeky bet as well, which is self-interested, that when you do analyse the failures, I think you'll find that a very, very rare cause of failure is spending too much on marketing. <laughs> So that's my bet. Now, I'm totally happy for you to come back in two years' time and say, Rory, you were wrong. But, so, but I'm, I'm putting a stake in the ground here that that's because of natural biases, uh, you'll find that's a surprisingly rare cause of failure. I suspect you're right. Let's find <laughs> out. Okay. Let's, Let's find out. out. Let's find out. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, place your bets, everyone. Place your bets. <laughs> Uh, fantastic. Thank you both again, and I'm sure we'll be in touch soon.